And I want you to consider with me today the historic mission statement of a well-known university. To be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. Now, this particular university was founded in 1636, and it employed exclusively Christian professors. It emphasized character formation in its students above all else, and it rooted in all its policies and practices a Christian worldview. This school served as a bastion of academic excellence and Christian distinction. Do you know what school I'm talking about? Harvard University. A school that began as a place to equip ministers to share the good news. Well, today one can hardly find any vestiges of Harvard's spiritual heritage. Apart from the words on a graduate's diploma, which in Latin are Christo et Ecclesiae Veritas. Truth for Christ and the church. Well, today no one would ever know that Harvard was once a distinctly Christian university. Within 80 years of its founding... Harvard's identity was shifting. In fact, a group of concerned New England pastors became deeply troubled by the secularization of Harvard. So they put together an effort to start a new institution of Christian higher education. Pastor Cotton Mather approached a wealthy philanthropist who shared these ministers' concerns. And the man's name was Elihu Yale. And he financed their efforts in 1718 AD as they named the college after him. Today, this institution is known as Yale University. And Yale's motto was not just veritas, truth, like Harvard, but lux et veritas, light and truth. And these founding pastors were determined to avoid the drift that they had observed happening at Harvard. Well, today, neither Harvard nor Yale uh, resemble the universities that their founders envisioned. At one of the institution's 350-year uh, anniversary, the keynote speaker, speaker said, the bad news is the university has become godless. A recent past president of another also acknowledged, things divine have been central neither to my professional nor to my personal life. Yale and Harvard stories are just a few of the countless examples of organizations, schools, hospitals, missions, nonprofit organizations, parachurch ministries, churches, NGOs, etc., who have departed from their original mission, from the founders' visions, from their Christian moorings. And I ask you today, how does this happen? How do well-intentioned ministries become so secular? How does this often occur in a very short period of time? Well, we're going to be addressing these questions today in, in this sermon. As the Apostle John wrote the letter, 1 John, he wrote it out of concern for the churches in Ephesus and the surrounding region who were being infiltrated with false teaching. They were wandering away from the truth of the gospel. Now consider this for a moment. This letter is believed to have been written in early 90 A.D. by the aged apostle, who they believe was in his 90s. And the churches in Ephesus and the surrounding region, they weren't quite 50 years of age yet, and the process of veering off course was already 
taking place. Now this we will address specifically in a few minutes as well. But before we get there, let me mention that this first chapter of John is concerned with the concept that Pastor James introduced to us last week of fellowship. And that comes from the Greek word koinonia. It means that we share in common. Again, look at verse 3 that we talked about last week. We proclaim to you that we have see, what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship. We've told you all these things about Jesus and the gospel and the good news and all this stuff so that we may have fellowship. You can have fellowship with us. You can share in common with us because we can have the same common treasure. Uh, but it also says, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's where we're sharing in common because of what God's done for us. Now look at verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, with Jesus, if we claim to share in common with Him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. But verse 7. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship. We have things in common with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. Four references in these five verses to fellowship and four references in only ten verses to this subject of fellowship, to sharing all of these things in common. So it's not hard to figure out what the key idea is here. And here John is going to tell us that fellowship with God demands that we walk in the light. And why is that? Why would this apostle say that, that fellowship with God demands, it requires that we walk in the light? He says this because God is light. You know, Isaac Newton began studying light many centuries ago. And as, he, and as he did, he made some significant discoveries that Albert Einstein would later pick up and develop further. Einstein discovered that light is one of the most complex things in our universe. And light, unlike most other things in the universe, is both wave and particle. It's both matter and energy. So light in and of itself is very complex. Verse 5, the apostle says here, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Now I didn't come up with this notion. I didn't just all of a sudden decide, you know, God is light. So I'm going to tell people that God is light. I didn't come up with that. And the apostles didn't create that either. They didn't say, hey, this is going to be cool. Let's do this in the early church. Let's go around telling everybody that God is light. They didn't come up with that on their own. Jesus is the one who told them. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You know, the Bible reveals four things to us about who God is. It tells us, in John chapter 4, that God is spirit. That's one of the things God is in his being, in his nature, in his essence, is spirit. We're going to learn more in the book of 1 John here later that God is love. Tells us in the New Testament also that God is a consuming fire. And here we learn that God is light. In the gospel of John, in verse 4 of chapter 1, it says, In him was life. And the life was the light of all mankind. Now the statement that God is light is a statement about the essence of God. You see, God didn't just create light. Yes, he spoke light into being. He said, let there be light, and there was light. That's why we have light in the world today, because God put everything in place. He 
spoke it. He created that. But he didn't just create light, and he, didn't just sh- he doesn't just shine forth light. God is light. That is his nature. It is his being to reveal himself everywhere, to reveal his, you know, his requirements and re- reveal his desires and, and all of that. He does all of that because he's light. And everywhere God goes, he casts out darkness. God is light. And it's referenced for us in the Bible in two ways, as truth and as moral purity. Now, to explore truth just a little bit, we're going to look at a very familiar verse from Psalm 119, verse 105, that many of us probably grew up singing as a little Sunday school chorus. You know, the word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God's revelation of himself is light. And metaphorically, it's represented for us here as truth. Because God is the word. Psalm 119, all of its long verses, they're the longest psalm in the Bible is all about the Word of God. And we know that Jesus is the Word, and we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we know that God's truth is part of His light. And God's truth gets revealed everywhere He goes as truth. Now sometimes we even, uh, in our uh, contemporary figures of speech, say similar, similar things metaphorically. I even told someone this week, when I was, was in a situation where I, I think the light went on for them. I think the light went on. They, they just finally figured out what the real issues are here. The light went on for them. Or sometimes we will say to people, let me shed a little light on the situation. That's a figure of speech. It's an expression. But what we're saying there is allow me to explain this to you. Allow me to guide you into understanding. Allow me to help you see the truth in this situation. That's what God does. He's light and he sheds his light and leads us to truth. Now, God also, we see in John 3, 19 through 20, a metaphor there of God in scripture as light, as moral purity. Listen to what it says. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. God's revelation of himself as light is as also moral purity. Because in God, there's no darkness. In God, there's absolutely no secrecy. There's no hiding. There's no uh, denying anything. You know, He doesn't hide things like sometimes spouses do with one another. He doesn't deceive anything. There's none of that. No shadows. Because God reveals himself, he makes himself known everywhere he goes. He makes even his truth and requirements, his moral purity, everything known because God is light. Now, let's learn today why John is making such an effort to portray God as light and why as believers that we need to walk in the light. Look at 1 John with me, chapter 2, and we'll look at verses 18 and 19. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you've heard, that the Antichrist is coming. The one who is against Christ. He's going to come. That's going to happen. We know that. And even now, many Antichrists have come. Many who are against Christ have come. They're proclaiming their wares. They're teaching their stuff. They're going about saying all that. Many have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they had 
but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. They don't care about unity. They don't care about sharing in common. They don't care about fellowship because they're against Christ. And that's why they go out from us. Now look at verse 26. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. John is writing this letter because false teachers had arisen within the church and they were striving to lead many astray. And what he's writing against is a very early form of Gnosticism. Now, gnosis happens to be the Greek word for knowledge. And the Gnostics claimed that they had discovered this secret, hidden knowledge, a higher knowledge of God, that they were the enlightened ones. In other words, that they had the light. And one of the central tenets of Gnosticism was that spirit is good, but matter is evil. Thus, they denied the incarnation of Jesus believing that it would be impossible for God, who's pure spirit, to take on a body which is evil. So Jesus, they said, was not the Christ. And salvation to the Gnostics was to escape the body through this special knowledge of theirs. It wasn't through faith in Jesus Christ. It was to escape the body. To them, the spirit was good and could do no wrong. But in the body, you could do whatever you wanted because the spirit was inviolable. You couldn't touch it with your actions, whether your actions were good or whether your actions were bad. And the body to them was just an envelope. It was a covering. And the spirit is the content. And it cannot be harmed by the deeds of the body. As a result of this so-called higher knowledge, they began calling their wayward, their sinful, their immoral, their deceitful actions as meaningless because it didn't matter. The spirit can't be hurt. They had this special way, this special truth to God. You know, the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth, a church that was started within months or maybe even years of the church of Ephesus. They had similar foundings. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6.14, What fellowship can light have with darkness? Here in verse 6 it says, If we claim we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not live out the truth. Brothers and sisters in Christ, be suspicious of anyone who claims they're close to God, but are walking in darkness. If they're living deceitful lies, if they're living immoral, unethical, if they're doing all these things, but they claim they're close to God, and that, that doesn't matter, or, well, you do this, or you do that. They're doing all that. Watch out for people like that. Be suspicious. Look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now, this begins with a conjunction here that's a contrast, but. And as we read this, we would expect here some sort of parallelism, some poetic parallelism, because it says if we claim to have fellowship with him, with God, and yet we're walking in darkness, then we're nothing but liars who don't live out the truth. But, here's the contrast. If we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with God. That's what you'd expect it to say. But it doesn't say that. It says we have fellowship with one another. So what is God saying here? Our fellowship with each other is rooted in God. And sin that notoriously harms fellowship 
is covered by the blood of Jesus, meaning that Jesus' life was exchanged for our sin on the cross. And fellowship with God and with one another then demands that we walk in the light. That we walk means to live. That's the Greek word peripateo. It, it, it means that we just walk. We live our lives uh, in the light. And the, we live our lives based upon God who is the light. And walking in the light also requires that we confess our sin. Look at verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We have no sin. We claim that there's no truth in us. Verse 10, if we claim we have not sin, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. So in verse 8, it's we have no sin. In verse 10, we have not sinned. And in both cases, the truth's not in us. God's word is not in us. We're making God out to be a liar. You know, one theologian writes, it remains true that whenever the principle of sin is denied, there follows, a, there follows a denial of responsibility for individual actions. And this was ancient Gnosticism in a nutshell. You know, in our world today, the New Age movement also denies sin. They call sin an illusion. They write, sin isn't a fact of human nature. It is an idea. And it would benefit the entire world. If every society could move past the toxic idea of sin to a new idea. Isn't that interesting? That's their proclamation. They have a new idea, new age movement. Others deny the reality of sin by blaming it solely on physiological or psychological or social causation. Physiological, that someone has a certain gene that leads them to do this behavior, or they've got a chemical imbalance in their brain that leads them to do these particular activities in life, and that's why they're doing it. And w what I'm saying here today, uh, please understand, I, you know, if they say these kinds of things, I'm not saying that, that or dismissing genetic issues or chemical imbalances in the brain, or people that want to claim that someone's psychological framework uh, is messed up because of their upbringing and their background, and so they act the way they do, they do what they do. Uh, I'm not dismissing that some of us may have had terrible backgrounds, but what I'm saying is this. None of those things are a license or an excuse to do whatever we want to live whatever we want to live because we can't help it. It's just the way we're wired up. It's just the way we're made. It's just the way we were raised. Uh, we can't help ourselves. No, there is not a license to sin like that, to live it up. And some also want to blame people's inappropriate behavior on the culture. For instance, right now we're living in a culture where there's the smash and grab activity, where people are running into stores smashing and stealing and plundering, and there's mob thefts that's going on, so people are coming in and overwhelming and, and just rushing in. And in some places where if you steal less than $950, you can't even be uh, uh, charged with that, so they're amazingly checking prices so they don't take more than $950, so they can't be charged anyway. Or when people are going out and doing the carjacking, that's happening right now and surrounding cars and taking the owners out and stealing their cars. And sometimes there's one place where even a, a whole group of homeless people are parting these cars out quickly, tearing them down, stripping them, and selling everything. That's happening in our society right now. And some want to argue that it's because the government stopped giving stimulus checks. 
at the end of December 2021. And that there's no child credits now for money coming to families. And so that's why that's happening. Or they want to say that because of the supply chain problems in our country, that there's no formula, child formula on shelves anymore. So people are acting out. And again, I don't want to dismiss the hardships that some people have in life. But I also want to say that's not an excuse for sinful behavior. Do you know the gospel clearly assumes the sinfulness of humanity? That's why the Bible tells us over and over that we need to be saved. That's why it says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single human being. It doesn't just say all the degenerates out there, all the worst, you know, horrific, violent offenders. It doesn't say that. It says all have sinned. And sinning means to miss the mark. doesn't mean if you miss it by an inch or a country mile. Every single person has missed it and they've fallen short of the glory of God. Romans also tells us in chapter 5, verse 8, that God demonstrated his love toward us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God knew, even looking forward, what we would be like. He knew what our sins would be committed. Every human being would do, and God sent Jesus anyway. He did it out of love for us. Tells us in the next chapter, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. That means separation from God for all eternity. That's the penalty. That's the price of our fallenness, of our sinfulness, of falling short of the glory of God. But the good news is that, you know, wages of sin is death, yes, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, the correct teaching of the Word of God is that we cannot deny our fallen human nature as a condition of sin. We cannot claim we have no sin. We cannot claim that we have not sinned. But what we can claim is Jesus who cleanses us from our sin. That's what we can complain. And a proper Christian attitude is to not deny sin like the Gnostics were doing, but to confess it, admit it, and then deal with it. As verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The new translations say purify us from all unrighteousness. But I memorized it uh, in, in past translations, and so I use the word cleanse. But that's what it means. It cleanses us. It purifies us from all unrighteousness. See, true confession means that we have the same attitude towards sin. That God does. We are in agreement with God who hates sin. Because ultimately, sin is rebellion against God. But if we come to that place of agreement, we come to acknowledge with God what God already knows, our sinful and our wayward ways, then we confess that to Him. God is a faithful God and a just God to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. It says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 14, speaking to Israel, but it's God's word to us as well, that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, will pray and seek my face, that I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34, where God was uh, uh, looking forward in a prophetic word to the new covenant, it says there that God would be faithful to forgive. I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sins no more. God is faithful. He's faithful to himself and he's faithful to us. And when we confess sin to us, he will be faithful in his dealing with us. And he will be just in his dealing with us as well. Augustine, an early church father, said, He who confesses and condemns his sins already acts 
with God. Walking in the light requires we confess our sins. Let me ask you today, do you do that? Is that a regular part of your life where you confess your sins? Do you do that when you have devotions regularly? Acknowledging to God what God already knows about you, all the dark places, all the shadows, all the bad attitudes, the things you said about people you shouldn't have said, all those things, you know, do you admit those things? Do you agree with God? You know, some people, when they have their daily devotions or regular devotions, they follow the model of ACTS, which is an acronym that people use. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Supplication is presenting your requests to God, your needs, what you're, what you're, what you're doing. And we prayed today uh, offering some of those, uh, you know, needs, asking God to heal people. You know, those are supplication there. But do you start with just adoring God and exalting and worshiping God? And then do you move to confession, acknowledging uh, your waywardness, my waywardness, my sin, and then offer thanksgiving to God for his grace and who God is and his love for us, and then go on to our needs. See, confession of sin is a requirement of walking in the light. And walking in the light requires as well that we depend upon Christ. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. My dear children... I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. You know, when he's saying here, my dear children, even though the apostle is taking a very strong stand against those in the church who are leaning into Gnosticism, he's revealing his pastoral heart in, term, in this term of endearment. He's being gracious in trying to get them to stop this Gnostic madness. He's not giving up on them. He's trying to help them. And the goal is to get them to not sin, to not just do whatever you want because the body doesn't matter. It's the spirit, you know. Don't do that. So he tells them of God's advocacy for them and for us. And he tells them of God's gracious sacrifice on their behalf and on our behalf as well in Jesus. And you know, when people recognize their sin for what it is and God's great forgiveness of it, this inspires people to want to avoid sin. You know, Jesus himself said that the one who is forgiven much loves much. And grace inspires gratitude in the hearts of God's children. But look at the end of verse 3 there. It says, but if anybody does sin. He wants them to sin less and avoid all this licentious living that they're being led to do to tell them it's not harmful at all. But if you do sin, we have an advocate. And that happens to be a legal term there. We have a representative, a lawyer, if you will, who will go in and will plead our case, who will defend us in the courtroom of God's justice. And you know, the book of Hebrews says of our great high priest, and remember, a priest was an intermediary who went between God and people and people and God. And Jesus, of course, is superior to everybody. That's what the book of Hebrews teaches, even above the angels. And it tells us that he's our great high priest. And in chapter 7, verse 25 in Hebrews, it says, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus is the best legal defense and defender that we could ever have. He always comes through for those he represents. He wins his cases for those he represents. And he's not only our advocate, but he's our righteous advocate. Again, listen to what Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, a text that Pastor James preached on four or five weeks ago. It says, for we do not have a high priest 
who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we have, yet without sin. This is why it, we, walking in the light requires that we count on Jesus, because Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is our representative. So we need to walk in him, walk in the light. And look at what it says in verse 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the one who paid the penalty for our sin. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on them. In other words, God's judgment against sin remains on them. They are going it alone. They're walking into God's courtroom. God's room of justice and with no advocate, with no representation, no means to pay the penalty that's going to be levied against them of sin. And such people are going in without Jesus. And they're saying, I don't need Jesus. I can go this alone. And John is saying, that is not something you want to tell God. Romans chapter 2, verse 5 says it well. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So the apostle John says, do not deny your sin. And do not deny God's righteous judgment of it either. And by all means, please, he says, do not deny your need for Jesus. Now notice at the end of verse 2 uh, who he died for. Not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. All the sins of the world. Jesus' atonement, think about this, is unlimited in its power. It covers any sin committed, even those by these early church Gnostics. However, if they do not accept Him as Savior and Lord of their lives, they will not get to experience the blessings of His atoning sacrifice for their sin. You know, if John were here with us today, he would ask us, do you claim to have fellowship with God? Do you claim to have fellowship with God? And he would ask us, if you appear before God's judgment throne, when you do appear, what are you counting on? Are you planning to go it alone? Are you planning to go on your own merit? Are you going to defend yourself with the standard human argument, I'm a good person, I'm just a good person? Are you planning to say, I have no sin? I haven't sinned? So I plead innocent, judge. I plead innocent. John would say to you, that's not a good idea. Do not go it alone. Let Jesus be your advocate. Let him represent you and pay the penalty that's levied against you for your sin. And then go on and walk in the light. As a person who's been declared innocent, justified as if just as if you never sinned. You're innocent in Jesus. And then live out the rest of your life in fellowship with God. You are free to go. Let's pray. 
God, our Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ, for the gospel. And we recognize today, God, that this good news has been under attack for 2,000 years. There have been many antichrists, many against Christ over the years. And we've seen so many wonderful institutions and hospitals and schools and, and ministries and parachurches and all these things and get off track, get off the mission of the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for this reminder today that we need to walk in the light, that we need to be in a relationship with Jesus. And then we have the good news, the gospel, that we can share with others. So, Lord, thank you for this reminder today. And I pray that each of us here will be in fellowship with God because we've come to the place of accepting Christ as Savior and Lord of our lives. And then we want to live out the rest of our lives in that freedom, in the goodness, in the, the love, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I pray we'll do that in your name. Amen.